Let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask now that you would open up your word to us by your spirit. Lord, you are the creator. We are the creature. You are God. We are not. Help us, Lord, to be convinced of that. Lord, help us to share the news about you who sent your son, Emmanuel, God with us. Help us, Lord, to worship the way, by the way that we live. And now, Father, I pray that you help us to understand your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I stand before you today overwhelmed. I began to follow Christ as my Lord and Savior when I was 18 years old. I've read the scriptures over and over and over again about Christ. Now he's the Son of God and God the Son. I've read and studied a lot of theological papers and, and writ, wrote them as well, preached many times about God, revealed as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, all of us know, every person on the planet knows that there is only one God. And how do we know that? Because God has placed that knowledge of himself within every person. And, you know, every December, though, it becomes a challenge in church life. Because honestly, how many different ways can a pastor tell the Christmas story? <laughs> and how many times can a congregation appreciate a new and a fresh, the same story which has been told for almost 2,000 years? So we decided to do something a little bit different here at Grace United, as Greg had shared a little bit ago. And it's a definite team approach. And so, Kat, thank you, and especially Greg, about this idea. Because we decided to make the birth of Jesus a secondary focus, not the primary focus of the Christmas season. We wanted to glance at the birth of Jesus this year, but we wanted to tell the bigger story. Well, why the glance? And what is the bigger story? Simply put, Jesus didn't stay an infant for very long, did he? As we know, especially we who are parents, kids grow up so fast. Now, over the past few years at Grace United, we have been able to come and see the real nativity story as recorded in Scripture. And, you know, part of this was to get at the real timeline and the actual location, as much as we can determine, of where Jesus really was born, instead of regurgitating what the tradition tells us. And think about the tradition that is built up just over the story of the Magi, you know, those wise guys that came to visit Jesus from the east. Tradition tells us that they appeared on Christmas night, but Scripture gives us every indication that they did not. Tradition tells us that there were three in the group in their caravan, but there are a whole lot of indications that show that that's not the case. A whole lot more. It's tradition, not Scripture, that tells us that the names of the Magi were Gaspar and Melchior and Balthasar. And Scripture makes it pretty clear that they showed up and worshipped the baby Jesus, again, not on Christmas night, but about when he was about two years old. See, he was a toddler when uh, they came and worshipped him. And he was about two years old when Joseph and Mary and Jesus escaped the terrorist activity of Herod by killing all the babies while they fled to Egypt. Now, 
knowing this kind of takes away some of the mystique, doesn't it? it takes away some of the, uh, some of the otherworldliness of the story. But we need to understand not only the Christmas story, but we need to understand all the stories in Scripture as accurately as possible so that we can live out the truth of what God has to tell us in His Word to His glory and to His honor. And so again, what we want to do this time around is to glance at Jesus as a baby and use this time to focus on four descriptions of Christ going far beyond that cold winter's night that was so deep as the carol tells us. And speaking of babies, toddlers are my favorite age group. I love toddlers. I really do. See, they're just beginning to explore their world. You know, they're toddling around, you know, they're, and they're babbling. You know, and, and I know that they know what they're saying, but unless you're that kid's parents, you need a translator, don't you? <laughs> a, tom, a, a toddler, though, is fairly harmless, isn't he? Unless you're Gideon, I guess. <laughs> so you can pick them up and you can put them in a place and, you know, sometimes they'll stay there actually, won't they? But he will, shall we say, exercise his lungs at times, right? We know this. Now, those things we know come with the territory. And Jesus was like that for a time, but not for long. Now and forever, Jesus is not a little baby toddling around and babbling. He's reigning as king, seated at the right hand of the Father, exalted to the highest place. I begin my preparation for this series, for this uh, message specifically a few days ago. Getting ready for yet another rendition for one of the greatest stories in the Bible. And I was not ready for what I experienced. Those of you who know me know that I'm not given to these kind of deep, profound experiences. Now, I don't seek them, and, and, I, and, and I know that it's, it's okay if I don't get those kind of experiences. You know, there's nothing wrong with my spiritual life if I don't have them. But I've had some of those experiences over the years, and I will tell you that when it came to preparing this message, I had one of those experiences. As I laid my heart before the Lord in preparation to, to do this, to, to get what God, I believe, wanted, God, wanted me to share with you about this, I got this overwhelming sense of something different in my spirit. The best way I can describe it is in the form of a question that just screamed in my mind very, very loudly. How can you as a man talk about the creator, God? Ever happened to you? A question just shouting in your mind and you have no answer. You cannot say anything. You just kind of stunned. Indeed, how can we as creatures deeply marred by sin? Mortals speak of the God of the universe. It was though I kind of entered the Holy of Holies, you know, before the veil was torn into. It was just me and the Ark of the Covenant. And I was afraid to touch, to reach out for fear that my uncleanness would violate something. That's kind of what I was feeling. That was kind of what I was going through. And so with a profound sense of creatureliness, 
I want to try, stammering though I might be, to attempt to speak of Christ as creator. Next week, we're going to talk about Christ being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Week three, we're going to look at Jesus as the great high priest interceding for us and and caring for us. And to finish up our Christmas series 2020, we're going to see Christ as the Lion of Judah. He's going to return as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so today, Christmas 2020, part one, we are going to speak of Christ as creator. And as we do, I want to couch it in terms of miracle. See, indeed, creation itself is a miracle. It's something unique. For the creation only happened once. Can we agree with that? You know, one of the amazing things that God has done for us as humans, he's given us a gift. He's hardwired in us the desire to create things. We've created countless things since the Lord has created us. Now, we made discoveries galore, and we put them to use, many of them for good ends, you know, like helping fallen image bearers when they're sick or they're hurt. And then we developed all things, you know, medical there. Technology is amazing, isn't it? Now, how much computing power do we have in our hands just when we make a phone call or we're watching yet another YouTube video? Although I think Rumble is a better choice nowadays, personally. But everything we create, we're using stuff that God has already provided. Isn't that true? It reminds me of a story of a, of a group of scientists who got together one day and decided that humans had come a long way in their evolution and no longer needed God. Okay? So they sent a delegate to him and said, you know, listen, God, you know, we scientists have decided that we don't need you anymore. We made significant advances in technology and medical science. We can transplant organs. We can grow tissue. We can even clone people. And God says, whoa, I'm impressed. (laughs) But you say, you don't need me anymore? Well, how about we put that theory to the test? Why don't we have a competition to see who can make a human being? The scientists agreed, and God said, great. Now, here's how we're going to do this. We'll each make a person just like I did when I created Adam. Okay? You go ahead. You first. Fine, no problem, said the scientist, and he stooped down to get a handful of dirt. (laughs) And God says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, you got to get your own dirt. (laughs) And so... As we begin to explore this holy thing called creation, we need to try to imagine, if possible, what it would be like if there was nothing or no one besides God. Before God spoke the universe into existence, and he said, let there be and there was, before there were no heavenly bodies, no galaxies, no planets, No sun, moon, or stars. No outer space, as we call it. No laws of physics. No gravity. And, of course, no time. Absolutely no matter at all. Nothing but God. In eternity past, God existed. The Godhead, the Blessed Trinity, had eternal fellowship with one another. 
perfectly satisfied with no needs. God was not lonely. He did not need to create anything. This was his state before he created. And out of sheer pleasure and out of a desire to glorify himself, God acted. God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be. And there was. Everything that is seen and unseen, all things created because he spoke a word, the laws of nature and nature itself, the sun, moon, and stars, all appear because God said, let there be. He created the earth and everything in it. And David echoes this in Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. There is nothing that exists that God did not create. And though God is Father, Son, and Spirit, He gave us, as it were, an awesome window to look through that we may catch a glimpse of His raw power and majesty as He created the universe. So go with me on this. Notice the choice of words that Moses uses when he writes in Genesis 1-2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, in in verse 1, he gives a bottom line summary. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now, in verse 2, we read that the Spirit of God hovered. And in verse 3, we read that God spoke. Then creation came to be. Creation did not happen until God spoke. Now, get this. And as we do, we'll fall on our knees. God spoke words. Words. These things is how we describe speech. Something that is said. And so why is that so worship worthy? Why is that so praise worthy? Well, the Apostle John fills in some detail for us as we continue to peer through that window of, of creation. John 1, 1 to 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Literally, God was the Word. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Do you see this? God created. God's Spirit hovered over the waters. God acted through speaking a Word. That word was literally the very agent through which everything came to be. Look at John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, that of the only glory of the, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Alert people give us insight in what, into what probably was going on in John's mind as he wrote this word this passage here. Remember, he was Jewish, and he was coming from a Jewish mindset. And so when he spoke about the Word becoming flesh, he was not only speaking of the agent of creation, but of the importance of a tabernacle on the earth. Now, John, of course, knew the Scripture. He was aware of what God commanded Moses in Exodus 29. Uh, where he expressed his desire for Moses to make a tabernacle that he may dwell with his people. He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel, 
and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. And how God loves to dwell with his people, doesn't he? In Isaiah 57, 15, we read this. Thus says the Lord who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite heart and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And so when John wrote that the word became flesh and dwelt among his people, that was probably what was going on in his mind, that the truth of the presence of God, his encouraging, powerful, holy presence displayed through this man. As the Shekinah glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle back in Israel's earlier days, now the same glory resided in a man, the word made flesh. And just like the creation was a miracle, as Moses wrote in Genesis 1, there's another miracle in John 1, the incarnation. It's deity taking on flesh. But how can that be? Almighty God, the creator, the one being without limits, now taking on all the limits of creature. But J.I. Packer, the one who is now enjoying the presence of the Lord, wrote a most excellent book called Knowing God. And here's what he said about it. The really staggering Christian claim is that the word becoming flesh means that this one took on humanity without loss of deity. It is the one who determines human destiny. This, is, this one was and truly is fully divine and is fully human. The more you think about it, the more staggering it becomes. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. Now, we know about the incarnation of the word, don't we? At least those of us who've been around Christian circles for a while. Deity taking on humanity, fully God, fully man. Now, this miracle, though, has become old hat, maybe, for many of us. We think about it Christmas every year, put up the presents or put up the lights and all that stuff. God worship baby Jesus. And to my shame, it was old hat for me until my profound experience and kind of woke me up from my lethargy. But imagine never having heard this truth before, ever. You might be on the edge of your seat wondering, John, who is this human who has taken on full deity? Don't leave me hanging. And John would say, I'm glad that you asked the question. Let me give you an answer. In John chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So what is John's answer as to who the word made flesh was and is? It's Jesus. Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. He is the word made flesh. And just at the right time in history, Jesus stepped out of eternity and into time. This is the foundation of what we call Christmas, isn't it? It's the real reason for the season. Now, some of you heard the countdown coming in today. Now, the song that, sh- that you heard may or may not have been familiar to you. 
You know, I think, Donna, you probably know that song, Michael Card's song. But the lyrics of Michael Card's song, Call to the Mystery, say so much. And here are the lyrics. When the Father longed to show the love he wanted us to know, he sent his only son and so became a holy embryo. No fiction as fantastic and wild, a mother made by her own child. The helpless babe who cried is God incarnate and man deified. That is the mystery, more than you can see. Give up on your pondering and fall down on your knees. Indeed, praise God who has been so gracious, so merciful, so powerful, so wise to send his son to us. He, Jesus, is the word made flesh, deity, humanity, together. That's the mystery. But the mystery is reality. It's this reality that we seek to remind ourselves every year around this time. So that said, let's look farther at the Word made flesh who tabernacled among His people. One day, seemingly out of the blue, but again, in perfect time, God sent His messenger, Gabriel, from His throne to Mary with a word to communicate to her an announcement about the Word made flesh. This Mary was a virgin, betrothed to be married. And Gabriel told her, Mary... You're highly favored of God. The Lord chose you to bear the Messiah. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And miraculously, you will conceive a holy embryo in your womb. He will grow in your womb and you will give birth to a son and you will call his name Jesus. He will be called great and be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Ladies, imagine being Mary, an unmarried woman. She was going to be made pregnant without sexual relations by the Holy Spirit overshadowing her. A scandal of the highest order. And God put her into that impossible situation. Did he not? See, for Mary to obey this word from the Lord meant that she would be viewed by many as unchaste and worthy of death. And for the rest of her days, Mary would have a reputation of reproach. And because of Mary's reputation, Jesus' reputation would suffer reproach as well. See, the Holy One of God would be considered by many as illegitimate story is real. It's raw, as is the lesson. See, when the Lord calls us to follow him, rarely is it an easy thing. The writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 13, 13, that we are to voluntarily bear the reproach the Lord endured. Misunderstood, mocked, hated, but worth every misunderstanding sinners can fling at us worth every reproach heaped on us by evil and confused people because we were then we were like them at one point and that's true it's worth it because Jesus is worth following but now let's switch pictures let's switch scenes 
and to show an even bigger, broader, wider announcement of the word of God made flesh. On the night that Jesus was born, angels appeared to shepherds. As some of us know, these were more likely temple sheep or temple shepherds serving a vital role in the life of the Jews. See, they were in charge of making sure any lamb that was birthed in their flocks was a perfect lamb. See, only perfect lambs are qualified to be offered as sacrifices for sins. And it was to these shepherds that myriads of angels gave the announcement of the birth of the Word of God made flesh, Jesus the Messiah. The angel said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom he has pleased. What a night that must have been. As soon as the shepherds heard this word, they made a quick search and they found the word of God wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, just as they were told. And having welcomed the word, the shepherds spread this message to all who would listen. Then they returned to their job of shepherding sheep, never the same again. And like them, we who have received the word of God made flesh are no longer the same. We've heard the word and we long to share it, long to share him with others. And though we go back to our lives, many of us, most of us, it is now, though, with a new attitude, a new vision, a new passion to serve the living and truly God. A, a, literally a new life is what we now have. For we have heard the word of God and we have now received him. And now we have the joy of the Lord. And regardless of what comes our way for the rest of our days, we have the joy of the Lord in our lives because we follow the word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ. And so fast forward about 30 years to the days of Jesus' ministry. Everything Jesus did and said was perfectly aligned with what the written word of God would predict about the Messiah. And you'll see some of these things here on the board. You can jot them down and read them later. We're not going to read the passages, but let me just kind of you know, put them in, into your face a little bit and you can read them on your own. Predictions about the Messiah. He would heal people, according to Isaiah 35. He will be the Son of God, according to Psalm 2. He will speak in parables. Did you know that was a prediction? That's Psalm 78. As a good shepherd of his people, he will feed them. Ezekiel 34, we remember how many people he fed. You know, sardine sandwiches that day, right? He will be full of wisdom and power, Isaiah 11. He will be called Mighty God, Isaiah 9. And on and on and on. These are predictions of the Messiah. Now, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, followed Jesus closely. He completely gave himself to the Lord, learning his ways and beholding his glory. And I find it instructive that the beloved disciple wrote the deepest, most profound things about Christ. Time will fail us if we even try to scratch the surface about all the things that John wrote about Christ. But let's look at one word here in the gospel and also in Revelation. The word is glory, for the word glory pertains to God. Let's see how John uses glory to describe his master. 
John begins his gospel describing Jesus as glorious. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In this simple statement, again from a Jewish perspective, in the words of one godly commentator, John presents Jesus as the ultimate revelation of God's glory and that God became up close and personal to us. And John will record Jesus' answer to Philip when he said to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father. Don't be enough for us. And what does Jesus say? He who has seen me has seen the Father. This does not mean that Jesus is the Father, but it does mean that Jesus identifies himself as deity. And what amazes me, though, about John's beholding of Jesus' glory is that this glory was actually partially concealed, rarely put on full display in the days of Jesus' ministry. Remember when he took Peter and James and John on that very high mountain? Remember what happened there? His face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And Elijah and Moses were up there having a little conference with Jesus. And what did Peter do? Peter did what Peter always does, right? Footing out disease. He says, Lord, it's great that we're here. Let's make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. And then I think it was Mark who said this. He didn't know what to say. (laughs) He baffled because they were terrified. You can hardly blame Peter, though, could you? See, he was indeed sore afraid, along with James and John. But what I want us to see here is that John was a witness of the mountain on, on, Jesus, on this mountain here, of Jesus' glory unleashed. There was another time when Jesus' glory was acknowledged, and this is when he prayed. Right before he went to the cross in John 17, John heard Jesus pray these words. John 17, 4 and 5. I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Know what Jesus prayed for? A reinstatement of his glory full force. See, the glory that everybody witnessed when Jesus was going around ministering and doing good was a concealed glory glory. It was the diffused glory. Whether it was raising people from the dead or feeding multiplied thousands or commanding nature with the word, all of it was no glory at all compared with the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. And now getting ready to face the cross, as the writer to the Hebrews says, he despised the shame in partial anticipation of the Father answering his prayer, that the glory that Jesus had with the Father before the world existed would again be restored to him. And so Jesus, suffering servant, went to the cross. He suffered far more than anyone would ever suffer. He died, was buried. Gloriously, he rose again from the dead. Forty days later, he ascended to the right hand of the Father to the place of the highest honor and the greatest news, the most profound truth of the glory of Jesus is found at the end of the book. 
revelation. See, the Father did answer the prayer of Jesus, and He did restore the glory that He had with the Father before the world was. And how do we know this? Let's go to Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 18. Turn with me there if you would. Let's read these words. It's amazing words. John's testimony of how he experienced the glory of Jesus unleashed in his life. Revelation 1, verses 9 to 18. And I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard him be, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book, send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Cyrus, Laodicea, or Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in his full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. And he said, fear not, for I am the living one. I'm first and the last. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. This my friends, is the glorified Lord Jesus. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who was closest to the Lord in the days of his ministry, fell down at his feet at the sheer magnitude of his majesty. This one is no lowly servant. This exalted, glorified one is to be worshipped and adored forever. The Lord Jesus is worthy of praise and glory and honor. Listen to what all heaven is doing at this very moment and will continue to do forever. Revelation 5, 11 to 14. Then I looked, John said, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb, to be slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. My brothers and sisters, what more can we say about this? Christmas was about the birth of the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He stayed harmless and helpless for only a little while. And 2,000 years later, we don't worship a baby. We don't worship someone who is helpless 
the one who exercised his lungs on that night was God incarnate, and he was man deified. This miracle of creation is beyond measure when God had originally spoke. But the miracle of the incarnation is even greater. The word became flesh, tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is that the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. But there's a third miracle I want to remind us of and introduce us to by way of application. And that miracle is of a heart changed forever. Remember a couple weeks ago how we saw Jesus Christ establish a new covenant where God's ways were written on the heart of a believer. The Torah would become the most precious thing in the life of a Christian. This is truly a miracle for a spiritual resurrection has taken place in the life of every follower of Jesus. Listen again. To who we are by nature, according to God's own word. Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This was us. This was us. Let it sink in. We are not good people. We're evil people. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were by nature children of wrath. What kind of miracle has God done in the life of a follower of Jesus, though? Colossians 3, 1 to 4. If, he says, or literally since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? Because you have died to the world and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The miracle of a changed life does not come about because we wish it to be so. It does not come about because of a positive confession or just adopting a new set of helpful habits like we do every January 1st, right? No, the foundation upon which a miracle of a changed life rests is this. God the Son has raised His people from the dead to the power of His Spirit. And the application God wants of us as His people is to simply live out the miracle of your resurrection. Here's what Paul tells us in Romans 6.11. He says this, As followers of Jesus, as those who have been born again, risen from spiritual death to spiritual life, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead as in separate from sin. Your old way of life. And alive to God in Christ as in living a new way of life. Because of the miracle of resurrection. And something that only God can do. And now in Romans 6, 12 and 13. Things get very practical here. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. In short, we live out the miracle of God's resurrection in our lives by refusing to yield to sin's temptations that always lead to having us indulge in our passions. For example, every time sin communicates to us, do it. You know you want to. We don't. We bring God into the middle of this. Here's how we do it. We take the temptation to the Lord and we say, Lord, you see what I'm being tempted with. I call on your strength. I call on your power to put down this temptation. That's step one. We call upon God's power that resides in us. This is a spiritual firefight and we are going to win it. Step two, present the members of your body to God as instruments for righteousness. Make it literal. Lord, today I present to you my mind that I think godly thoughts after you. Lord, I present my eyes to you that I might see things that please you and only things that please you. I present my hands to you to engage them in doing things that are righteous, not things that are unrighteous. I present my mouth to you that I might speak words that will help and not harm others, that I might speak truth and give you glory. Every body part, present that body part as an instrument, a weapon of righteousness. Put that on the altar. And this is how you are to put down sin and live righteously. So this morning, my prayer has been that through these stammering lips and overwhelmed heart, that I was able to communicate something to you of the majesty and the glory of God in Christ. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. May we behold his glory and may we live out his righteous ways. He is worthy of all of our praise. May he find us working out our salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in us to do or to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And let's remember and never forget the reason why he created us in the first place. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you as the word made flesh. You as, and as one with the Father and the Spirit have been forever a trinity, enjoying fellowship, unbroken fellowship, except for that one time, Lord Jesus. When you were on the cross, 
and you said, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Lord Jesus, fellowship with the Father was broken because our sin was placed upon you. We don't understand how you would want to do that. And Father, we don't understand how it would be pleasing to you to crush your son for us. But we worship you in praise, in honor, in thanksgiving. You are worthy, Lord. And I pray, Lord, as we sing, as we give, and as we leave this place, may we be faithful to you, Lord, out there in your world. This is your world, Lord. You made it. May you help us to be faithful, to give a faithful witness to those around us, regardless of how they treat us. Because, Lord, we want to hear one thing when it's all said and done. Well done. Well done. So thank you, Lord, for this time. Use this message in our lives to change us to be more like yourself. In Jesus' name we pray.